Hello and welcome to BioPod, the official podcast for the School of Biologic Sciences here at the University of Edinburgh. I'm Hamel Chen, and today Alistair is sitting down with Professor Amy Bach to chat about RNA therapies. In the past pandemic, RNA vaccines have been applied as a therapy to combat coronavirus and save life globally. Apart from vaccines, RNA has been widely applied on medications such as cancer immunotherapy and antiviral treatments. Today, we will learn about Amy's lab's research on RNA interference and communication and how to use RNA as a drug to kill disease. Now over to you, Alistair. I was hoping you could start by introducing your academic background and journey to where you are today. Happy to. So I started as an undergrad studying chemistry, and I always liked sort of the math side of science and solving problems and sort of analytical approaches. And my junior or senior year, I got really interested in quantum mechanics, and I applied to do a a PhD in physical chemistry, and then I realized that um, I actually probably wouldn't solve what Einstein hadn't solved already, and I wanted to find a more um, applied project that I could relate to. And so I got interested in biology, took a a year off because I had no biology in my undergrad training, took a year off, did classes in biology, some genetics, molecular biology, and then got into a PhD program in in biochemistry. I didn't really know what I wanted to study, um, but I knew I liked the sort of physical physical side of, of biological systems and biochemistry. And I was at the University of Colorado. There was an incredible amount of uh, research, knowledge, energy around RNA there. And partly because the Nobel Prize had uh, gone to Tomczyk, among others, for the discovery that RNA can act as a catalyst. And he was there. He he taught me advanced RNA biochemistry in my first year. Um, There were many other people studying RNA there, and I just got taken by RNA and sort of how many discoveries have have come from studying RNA um, that are relevant to medicine and to evolution and to life. So I guess that took me up to doing a PhD in RNA biochemistry. I studied how RNA molecules fold, how they interact with proteins, and how that partnership allows for different biological reactions to happen. All of it was in vitro. I'd never worked with a cell. Um, And so as a postdoc, I thought that I wanted to learn a biological system uh, to apply my RNA knowledge to. So I looked for postdocs in virology, found a hard time getting anybody to take me, even though I could get lots of postdocs in RNA, RNA biochemistry. Again, I'd never worked with cell culture or anything, but I eventually landed a position over in Edinburgh. My partner at the time wanted to move here. I thought, great, we'll come for two years. It's 17 years later. Anyhow, got into virology, learned about viruses, and learned at that time about small RNA biology. That's when the Nobel Prize in 2006, I moved over in 2005, 2006, Nobel Prize went for RNA interference, and I got really into that mechanism. So I've sort of just, my journey has started with chemistry, solving problems, moving to biology, and following the, uh, serendipitously following the the subjects that have come into my realm, uh, from RNA biology to RNA interference, 
And then I think maybe I'll talk more about then how I got into RNA communication. Um, I was wondering what kind of projects you're working on at the moment. So what I got really interested in uh, after doing this postdoc and working on how viruses use RNA in their life cycles, I got interested in this sort of emerging field that RNA is naturally found outside of cells. And we know very little about how that is specified, what those RNAs do, and how how and where they act. And so a field has sort of emerged when I was just starting my own group around 2009, uh, was this early field of extracellular RNA. And I got interested in whether extracellular pathogens could be using their RNAs the way that we'd seen viruses can do to interact with their hosts. And so I started a collaboration with Rick Mazels, who was here then, to look at whether parasitic nematodes release RNA into their environments and whether those RNAs can traffic to cells. And it has been an incredibly exciting and lucky, really, project because we work with a model, a gastrointestinal nematode that naturally is a mouse pathogen that that absolutely does release lots of RNA into the environment and, and has evolved some interesting RNA binding proteins also that help, we think, with the transmission of that RNA and the function as, as a way of modulating the, the host cells. So it's been a really, really exciting journey to sort of now push that frontier area in RNA biology that also intersects with host pathogen interactions forward. So you've mentioned that you study RNA in many different organisms. I was wondering what led you to study RNA communication in such a diverse set of models. Yeah, I think most of our work has been with the gastrointestinal nematode. But when we first started that, it was so new. There wasn't any papers about RNA being released from any worm at that time. And I think you really when you have something that's new and you don't know what to expect, you really want to be able to compare it to something. And I also just naturally like to collaborate and had people contacting me. And so we've definitely worked and collaborated or supported other pro people to do projects in a lot of different systems. But our, our, our bread and butter and our, our, that we still have so much to learn about now is this, is this nematode model. One of, the, one of the projects, though, that one of the questions that comes out of studying the, the nematode and studying any system is, well, how is, how is RNA, how, how do you specify where RNA, and, and one way that it gets out is vesicles, where those vesicles go? So if you think of RNA in terms of communication, someone is is talking with RNA, they're releasing RNA into the environment. Well, how do you figure out who hears that signal? Who takes that up? And if you're only studying one model, you don't really know how specific that is. Does everybody talk with RNA? Does everybody have the ability to listen? And so we got interested in, because we study a gut pathogen, we got interested in understanding who else in the gut can use RNA in communication. Now, the problem with the gut, <laughs> there's so many different organisms in there, many, many, many bacteria, fungi, I guess, uh, you know, uh, many host mammalian in addition to these nematodes. So there's lots of options. We've been doing a little bit of work with bacteria um, and and understanding if, if, if mouse and host cells can actually 
transfer RNA to, to certain bacteria. And that's, that's an interesting project in the lab. So that's, I think the, the drive has been so that we can have a comparison and we can study specificity, but there's also big drive with applications. You know, people, if we, if we do find a niche where there's certain vesicles that deliver RNA to only certain species or certain bacteria or certain hosts, then, then we can start to exploit that in drug delivery. Possibly taking a tiny step back, can you maybe give us a quick basic explanation on what RNA is and how exactly <laughs> it can be used to communicate? Yeah, sure. So RNA, someone, my friend was saying, it's the cousin of DNA, uh, but it's way cooler. No, uh, RNA is like DNA with just a couple subtle differences. But because of those subtle differences in structure, it can fold up and do many different things. Whereas DNA is really sort of the code that we all have. RNA is what, what, what gets made from that code. And it doesn't just work to sort of transmit information in terms of what proteins get made. It can fold up, do its own thing, act as a guide, take protein places. So it can do many different things in our body. And the communication idea is that part of its role, its, its, its biology, its evolution relates to its ability to transmit information from one location to another. And in terms of communication, I think of that as from one cell or one organism to another cell or organism. And that's just something that we're learning and we're seeing that certain RNA species do get out from one place, get into another, and they can affect that recipient to change its properties. And so that is the concept of communication. I was wondering what the applications of studying RNA were. Well, I think the COVID vaccine is probably our best big application for the field in general um, in the last several decades, I would, I would probably say. Because, and actually there's a few elements to that. Because of that, we now have the capacity to manufacture RNA at a large scale. And somewhat a proof of concept that you can put RNA into many different humans um, and have have safety uh, associated with that. Do that do that safely. So the major advance I think is that you can actually program RNA. RNA is very easy now to synthesize and to and you just define what the code is. It's a four nucleotide alphabet, so you can make any sequence that you need to. One application of that is that you make a sequence that will get turned into a specific protein, and that's what the vaccine does. And so I think the ability to quickly change which sequence you need to, to generate and to be able to deliver that as a drug, that's a huge advancement um, as a vaccine. So I was wondering if you could tell me about the different types of RNA-based therapies. Yes, happy to. So there are a few classes of how RNA can be used as a therapy. One is that it can be programmed to make a protein. So you just use the sequence of a messenger RNA that will get translated into a protein. Examples of that are the, the vaccine, of course, um, but also there are scenarios and diseases where you need to put in protein to a cell. And one of those examples, just one, is cystic fibrosis, where there's an anion channel in the lung that's mutated. And so that doesn't, that doesn't function. And 
many approaches have been made for cystic fibrosis to sort of correct that. But one one approach is using uh, messenger RNA delivered to make the correct version of the anion channel, which is, again, mutated normally in this disease. And so that's called protein replacement. Um, and there's several other uh, mRNA-based drugs in development for rare diseases, for cancer, for heart disease, using that strategy. The other way that RNA can be used as a sort of mimicking a natural mechanism is to, to shut off proteins. And this is, uses the mechanism that's called RNA interference. And this is where the RNA acts as a, it's 22 nucleotide, it's a guide, and it tells a protein where to go. So it binds to a messenger RNA in the cell, takes a protein there, and that then silences, shuts down that messenger RNA, so you won't have the protein made. And that, again, has a number of roles in disease where we know that there's too much of a specific protein. And one of the examples, I think the first FDA-approved drug of this category is called Patricin, and this targets a protein called transthyretin, um, where there's too much of this protein, and it, it treats amyloidosis and neuropathies associated with that, um, again, by just shutting down the amount of this protein that gets made. And many uh, there's, there's many other examples in development. I guess the other mode by which RNA can act uh, that's been shown is it can affect the processing of an RNA, so the, the forms of a protein that get made in the cell. And this there's, there's drugs associated with changing splicing, how messenger RNAs get matured and processed into certain versions of protein. So there's making a protein, shutting off a protein, or changing the type of protein that gets made. And I am sure as the field continues to advance, we may have additional mechanisms by which RNA can act uh, as a drug. But those are those are the main categories. I imagine for these uh, therapies that it's quite important that the RNA uh, gets administered to the right areas of the body, maybe for specific uh, clinical applications. I was wondering how you can make sure that the RNA gets to where it needs to be in order for the therapy to work. I think it's a very uh, timely question because that's probably one of the biggest obstacles for just plowing forward with RNA-based therapies right now, is that the, the way that we deliver, for example, the vaccine is in a lipid nanoparticle, and that allows, as, that allows the negatively charged RNA to get across the cell membrane, which is also negatively charged, but those delivery vehicles are not always specific. So obviously we can inject that into our muscle and that will work as a vaccine, but if you need to target another organ in disease, um, you have to be able to make sure that it will get to the right cells and, and, and tissue, but not get to the wrong place. And I think that is an area that is still very much uh, in development of what we can add on to these vehicles to program that vehicle to go somewhere specific. Some examples are using viral proteins um, that will naturally have evolved to target specific cells or get through the blood-brain barrier and get to the right place in the, in the brain. Um, so there's examples where we learn from viruses, but what I would say that we're trying to do is, is learn from the natural extracellular vesicles that we know transport RNA 
and, and what we're actually studying in the lab, that, that parasites uh, make these vesicles to get RNA uh, out and into a cell. Well, do they have things that define which cells take these up? Um, so, so I would say there's, there's some advances based on what we know already, but there's a lot of development to be done. And there's a big, big area of research around sort of studying this natural RNA communication to see if we can learn tricks of how to get things in specific places. Um, so I also was wondering what the advantages of RNA therapies are compared to other therapeutics, for example, DNA therapies. Yeah, I guess with RNA, you're not changing the genome. Um, and so it's transient in some regard. Uh, it's, a, it's kind of a different approach to genetically modifying um, a, a genome. You're, you're, you're changing the product, not the actual sort of footprint or bl blueprint, I should say. For RNA now, I, I think it's again, probably enabled by the COVID vaccine. We can make it at large scale at a, at an afford, in an affordable way and hopefully in, in a sustainable way. I think it's critical mass, crit technologies to, to scale this, to manufacture this, and we can design those therapies pretty well. As I said, it's a four nucleotide alphabet. There are some modifications to the RNA that have been introduced that are crucial to avoid it inducing immune response, but we're, we know those uh, and we'll, st I'm sure, learn, learn more. We can design them well and we can manufacture them well, and I think we can do that at a large scale. That's the best advantages that I can think of right now. So you mentioned uh, delivery being one of the main challenges in RNA therapies at the moment. I was wondering if there were any other issues with developing therapies. Uh, you know, I think the one thing that has been discussed is societal acceptance of RNA. So mm. it's one thing to make a bunch of products. It's another thing to have the public trust those products. And I think... A, a need for all of us as RNA biologists is to help educate and discuss, I guess, with the public what RNA is, how it works, and, and how it can be used in healthcare. So I think one obstacle I could see is just having acceptance by the public. As we're talking about evolving therapies based on RNA for, for human diseases, there's also therapies based on RNA for uh, honeybees, for plants, and they work a little bit differently, but but actually not not entirely. Many of the the small RNAs that I that I mentioned, the ability to shut down gene expression based on a small piece of RNA, that works in plants and insects, and that can be a way of um, targeting pests. You know the the bugs that infect these these plants. So that's being applied in agriculture. And, and again, though, the same issue is that the public understands what these products are. And an advantage of them is that they're, they're not toxic. They're not pesticides. They shouldn't, you know, they're, they're a natural product in a way that we are, pro, we are designing. I think there's something to be said for the approaches and the public engagement around human human RNA-based therapies, as well as sort of agricultural RNA-based products. That it's the same type of materials that we're using and, and so that the public understands what those are and um, we're, we're having a dialogue about their use. Yeah, that's really interesting. 
in an ideal world, where do you see the field uh, going next? I think, I think, and I hope that we, the vision would be that we can have this sustainable green drug for for various applications that we can design and manufacture in a in an equitable way to counter the infectious diseases and the non-infectious diseases that we will encounter. And I think, as I said, the COVID vaccine has really enabled the manufacturing side of that. What's next, I think, is what we will continue to do is know what the right targets are in other disease contexts, what the what the right vaccine candidates are, and and have the public trust and be comfortable with these types of medicines. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the episode. As always, please remember to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And see you next time. Mm-hmm.